Good morning. My name is Brian Parks, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Redeemer Church of Dubai. And I also have the privilege of bringing God's Word to you this morning. Um, When I was in high school, I was a student, and I was in English class. We would often be assigned some of the big classics, books like Moby Dick or Great Expectations, books like that. Large books that were harder to read than comic books, harder to understand, harder to grasp. And there was a great temptation for me to not read them and turn quickly to what were called Cliff's Notes. I don't know if you know what Cliff's Notes were. They were pamphlets that were summarizing those classic works. Maybe they were 30 pages, they were small, they were thin. And in them, they described the characters in the big books, they described the plots, the themes. Summaries can be really helpful. They take complex ideas, big ideas, and boil them down to their most important parts. The three verses that we're considering this morning are one sentence. They're a prayer that Paul is praying for the Philippians that in many ways summarizes what it means to live as a Christian or what it means to live as Christians together in the world. It's a sort of Cliff's Notes for the Christian life. We'll look at this prayer as having three parts this morning, and this is our outline. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. Discerning love. Holy lives. And glory for God. Discerning love, holy lives, and glory for God. Now, since it's so short, let me read these three verses to you one more time, beginning with verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Paul's letter to the Philippian church was written from the seemingly depressing and discouraging location of a prison cell. A prison cell from which Paul would one day be led to his execution, And yet, this letter beams with joy and hope and deep affection for the Philippians. It's amazing to think that God sovereignly determined that perhaps his greatest evangelist of all times would be imprisoned and prevented from taking the gospel to more lost people for these years of his life. It would seem like a monumental loss to us. Certainly it did to the Philippians too. And if we were God, we probably wouldn't do it that way. Yet the Philippians got two of the best things that one can possibly hope for in the Christian life out of Paul's imprisonment. They got powerful prayers prayed for them. And they had Holy Scripture written for them. And now for us. Paul writes on behalf of he and Timothy, and after reminding the Philippians of his deep love for them and of his confidence in God's work in them, a work that's promised to be completed on the day when Christ returns, Paul writes a prayer that he's been praying for them. 
Have you ever had someone write out the prayer that they are praying for you and send it to you? Maybe they emailed it to you. Or better still, they uh, wrote it on paper with an old-fashioned writing device called a pen. I can't think of anything much more encouraging in the Christian life than knowing that someone is praying for you, and even better, knowing what they are praying for you. So encouraging. Now, the first point in our outline corresponds to the first three clauses in this sentence. Paul tells them straight away that he's praying that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Jesus gave his disciples what he called a new commandment on the night that he was betrayed by Judas. It's recorded in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says that that new commandment is love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so we know, and even most non-Christians know, that Christians are to love one another. But there's so many ways that you and I, as followers of Christ, begin adopting the world's ideas about what love is and what it looks like. Oftentimes the world thinks of love as mere sentimentalism. Sentimentalism really only wants to be polite. It wants to smile and give a greeting, but get no closer. And it's oftentimes just based on emotions. Now, of course, emotions are good, they're not bad, but emotions alone cannot generate the kind of love that God has shown us. Or another kind of love that the world tries to convince us of is eroticism or sexual love. And so we get tricked into thinking of love only in sexual terms or romantic terms, and so thoughtlessly then taking in a steady diet of TV shows or movies or popular music or romance novels, or in its worst form, pornography, will lead us astray about what, what God's love is like. And even the good and right sexual love between a husband and a wife are based on an even more basic kind of love. Now, the love that Paul has in mind is the self-sacrificing love of Christ. It's the Christian's supreme example of love. Paul will later urge the Philippians in chapter 2 to look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he points to Christ, who set aside his glory and took on the form of a servant and gave himself up on the cross in obedience to God the Father for us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16 says, But Paul wants their love to grow not just in quantity, he wants it to grow also in a certain quality. He's praying for more love amongst them, which has the quality of knowledge and all discernment. Now, discernment, let me give you a definition for discernment. Discernment is the spiritual ability to consider a situation or a person in light of the gospel and God's word in order to understand what is both true and best. I'll say that again. Discernment is the spiritual ability to consider a situation or a person in light of the gospel and of God's word in order to understand what is both true 
not false, and best, not second best. Discernment comes from knowing God's Word well and knowing God well too. And it can only be properly cultivated by some history of obedience to God's Word. Simply memorizing verses won't make you discerning. It's a good start, but you have to obey God in order to become discerning. Discernment is what you need when your married friends seem to be in some kind of tension. What do you ask? What do you look for? Who is the source of the problem? Is anyone misrepresenting themselves? You need discernment. Discernment is needed when you sit with a friend and you hear them talk about their next career move. Are they trusting in Christ to take care of them? Or is their job an idol in their life? What questions do you ask? You need discernment. Or even simply, what questions do you ask of fellow church members to begin knowing what's really going on in their hearts and minds? How they're doing in their relationship with Christ? What's bringing them encouragement or Christ or possibly entangling them in sin? Paul knew that the Philippians needed discernment to love one another well. They needed a kind of wise love. Love that doesn't just see the facts of one another's lives, but the spiritual dynamics. And then knows how to interact in such a way that builds up in Christ and comes alongside in the fight against sin. That's why the next phrase that Paul writes is, so that you may approve what is excellent. The NIV translates this, so that you may be able to discern what is best. What is best? What's excellent? Self-sacrificial love wants to know what is best and excellent for the other person. Discerning love knows just what to say or do for the other person's maximum spiritual good. And so when Paul instructs in chapter 4 of Philippians, he says... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now when Paul says that, he isn't thinking about some kind of otherworldly philosophical thoughts. He's talking about real actions and real conversations and real questions for real people in real situations. That's why he goes on to say, what you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things. He wanted them to think about things that they could do and say to love one another. He wanted them to think think about excellent actions and excellent words. Redeemer Church, to grow in Christ is to grow in practicing this wise and discerning love with one another. Husbands with wives and parents with children. Singles with marrieds. Seniors with young people. Now one of the areas that we can always grow in discerning love for one another is between the different cultures and nationalities that are represented in our midst. If you're here for the first time, you may be a little overwhelmed by the diversity in the room. We are too sometimes. And it's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. It's a great privilege to interact with people from so many different cultures and nationalities. And when you guys sing God's praises, wow, wow, there is nothing better on this earth, this side of heaven than that, at least in my mind. 
I miss it so much when I go away and travel. And I bet you do too. But there is an extra challenge to loving one another wisely and deeply across our differences. I mean, it's hard enough to know just how to greet one another, isn't it? Do you kiss? Do you shake hands? Do you hug? Do you bow? In fact, when I had just arrived in the country back in 2002, I was determined to overcome my fear of kissing other men on the cheek. <laughs> I wanted to honor my Arab brothers by getting this down, learning it. I decided to leave the Emirati nose bump aside, you know. I mean, if you get the alignment wrong on that, <laughs> wow. But my friends, uh, my Arab friends, that is, seemed to get a good laugh out of the macho way that I greeted them with kisses on the cheeks, you know. Mwah! Mwah! I think they feared for their cheekbones as I went in for the kiss. Listen, some of you are going out of your way to build friendships across nationalities. You're paying attention to learn the particular ways that a person from another culture feels loved and cared for. You are showing interest in their way of doing things, their food preferences. You let them raid your refrigerator. Their ways of life are ways that you're learning. And these things oftentimes are not right or wrong. They're just different. Maybe, you, maybe one family eats dinner at 5 p.m. and another family eats dinner at 11 p.m. I want to commend you. I want to commend you on that. Whatever steps you're taking in that area. Others of you are maybe a little more shy and you haven't worked up the courage yet to reach out across cultures. You're satisfied with uh, this wonderful, albeit experience of sitting in the same room with 50 plus nationalities every week. But to love with discernment and so approve what is excellent, we need to get into each other's lives. You can't love from a distance. You can't love one another across cultures just by sitting in the same room with each other for two hours each week. And so let me give you three ways that you can take a step to love one another across cultures. Number one, be quick to forgive cross-cultural offenses. For those of you whom I greeted in the wrong way, please forgive me. Thank you for your forgiveness. Uh, I'm sure uh, with many of you, I have needed your forgiveness and didn't even know it. We are people who forgive because Christ has forgiven us. Number two, choose to endure some cross-cultural discomfort. Choose to endure some cross-cultural discomfort. Look, loving across cultures will involve mistakes, misunderstandings, unmet expectations, and some embarrassment. But we endure cross-cultural discomfort for the sake of loving one another. Christ left the Father's side and took on flesh and entered our messy and sinful and wicked world in order to save us. He endured more than just discomfort and embarrassment. He endured torture and death for us. We can endure discomfort for the sake of loving one another, surely. Number three, learn your culture's typical idols and forsake them. Learn your culture's typical idols and forsake them. Every culture, every person is tainted by sin. And there's, there's good as well in us because we're all made in the image of God. 
But there are oftentimes some typical expressions of sin that show up in our respective cultures. Some of us come from cultures where there's a high regard for those who are older and in authority. There's a clear hierarchy of who gets honored. But that can easily turn into favoritism, where people who are higher in the hierarchy get treated better than people who are lower in the hierarchy. And that's sin. James tells us that we shouldn't show favoritism and bias. Some of us are from cultures where there's a high value on the individual's choices. The community opinion matters much less. But that can result in resentment and anger when a friend challenges you about your sin, sin in your life, or some choice that you've made that doesn't honor God. You think, it's my choice, it's my life, I want to live it the way I want to. That's sin. We need each other to speak into our lives about sin and following God. Some of us come from cultures where children are typically motivated maybe by speaking down to them, criticizing them, telling them that they are only as valuable as their marks in school. Others tend to be too permissive and speak only positively when a loving rebuke or correction or some restrictions in their life is what would show them love the best. And the list goes on and on for the typical sins in our respective cultures. And in each of these cases, and so many more, we need to not claim the defense of, well, this is the way we do it in my culture. Instead, we need to know about biblical culture. We need to let the Bible critique our ways of life, even the ones that we're most used to. The Bible has wisdom about what is best and excellent for every people at every time in history, in every land. And if you set out to forsake some of these cultural idols in your life, and someone from your own culture maybe corrects you and pulls you back and says, no, that's not the way we do it. I want to get you to ask the Lord for discernment, but keep your eyes on Jesus. And on the scriptures, you gently disagree if you need to, and you obey Christ. He's your Lord and Master. Isn't it amazing to think that Christ, who was sinless, loved all people around him in the most discerning way every day of his entire life? Every day he loved others With the wisest of love. He did everything and only what his father told him to do. And his wise love, this wise love, led him to the cross for us. It's the Spirit of Christ that is at work in you and I. If you trust in Christ. And that's why Paul prayed for this love to abound in the Philippians. They, like you and I, need Christ himself to transform us into more and more loving followers of his. Now, this discerning love brings a cascade of other effects and transformation in our lives. And that brings us to our second point, holy lives. Holy lives. Paul prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul is praying but also teaching about the connection between discerning love and a life of holy living. And the result of this love is a growing purity, blamelessness, and righteousness. These words all combine really to describe a holy life. 
I wonder how you think of love and holiness and how they're connected. Do you even think that they're connected? I think we often tend to pull those two apart and think of them as separate and unrelated to one another. And we think then of some people as being more loving and not very holy. And we think of some people as more holy and not very loving. And part of the reason that we see these characteristics of being in tension with one another is that we mistake them for their counterfeits, the fake version of these characteristics. And so, like I mentioned early, earlier when I talked about sentimentalism, we confuse godly love with permissiveness. Just letting people do what they want, just being nice, be warm, be approving. And we confuse holiness with self-righteousness proud moral accomplishment that often suppresses love and blocks compassion in our lives. But in God, these two characteristics of love and holiness fit perfectly together and all the, with all the rest of God's attributes. God is perfectly loving. He is love, the scripture tells us. And he is completely holy, morally perfect. So these characteristics should fit together in us as well because we're image bearers filled with the Spirit of Christ. Listen, any effort toward holiness in our lives is loving in its goal. Any effort towards holiness in our lives is loving in its goal. So not sinning in our anger demonstrates love for our neighbor and treats them as an image bearer. Turning away from the lust in our hearts keeps us from thinking of people as objects. Refusing to be jealous guards our hearts so that we can freely consider others' needs before our own. Likewise, any godly love in us seeks what is best for the others around us. And what is best never involves sin. What's best is holiness. So if you love your neighbor, you want holiness for them. And you want to interact with them in holy ways. That kind of love is willing to risk a break in the relationship to call out sin and help your brother or sister to fight it rather than just to let it keep happening. That kind of love is repulsed by the sin of favoritism or hatred, not only because it offends God, but also because it harms people made in God's image. Even the ones who are committing the sin. How do you need to adjust your view of love and holiness? Do you think one is more important than the other? Do you think, I want that one, but I don't really care about the other one? Do you confuse holiness with self-righteousness? If so, you need to repent and seek holiness that has love for God and neighbor as its goal. Do you confuse love with permissiveness or simply being nice? If so, you need to repent And seek the love that self-sacrificially works for the moral good of your neighbor. Now, where do these fruits of righteousness really come from? Paul tells us. He tells us in this verse. They come through Jesus Christ. They come only through Jesus Christ, I want to emphasize. Now, if you're not a Christian, I wonder what you think about that. Oftentimes people think that the Bible and the Christian faith is simply about moral improvement. It's about being a good person. They think of uh, Christians gathering together each week to try and do better. 
And from there, it's easy to reach the conclusion that all religions are simply the same, really, in their purpose. So simply trying to obey the Bible's commands, though, will not make you righteous. Listen, it will not make you righteous. You can't do it. But this verse reminds us that the characteristics of purity and blamelessness and righteousness only come through Jesus Christ working in us. Friends, the bad news of the Bible, it, had, it has bad news in it, by the way. The bad news of the Bible is that all people have disobeyed and rebelled against the holy and loving God who created us. Everyone from wicked dictators to little old ladies. Everyone from drug kingpins to kindergarten teachers. And no amount of good deeds or acts of kindness can please God if sin remains in us unaccounted for, undealt with. Sin that's not dealt with by God deserves judgment. And that will happen on the day of Christ, mentioned in verse 10. Even good deeds done to try and earn His favor will fall flat. Christian author Sinclair Ferguson has said in in simple terms, thinking that you deserve heaven is a sure sign that a person has no understanding of the gospel. And I would add the whole of the Bible as well. Righteousness only comes from God. The good news in the Bible is that He sent His perfect righteous Son, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again. And when you admit your inability to please God with your good deeds and you turn in faith, trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then Christ takes your punishment for sin on Himself and He gives you His righteousness. He gives us His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to live in us and mark us as His own. That's the only way to begin pleasing God. That's the only way to be ready for the day of Christ. You can do that now. You can trust in Him and His righteousness. There's no classes required. There's no march to the front that's required. There's no membership in a particular church here or there or church tradition. You can do it now. Turn to the righteous God in faith and receive righteousness for yourself. Redeemer Church, You who are trusting in Christ, we strive to live holy lives of growing purity and blamelessness and fruits of righteousness all in anticipation of this day of Christ. We're looking forward to it. And we know that any holiness in us is from God and not from ourselves. And He has promised that He Himself will complete this good work in us. In fact, later in chapter 3, Paul lists out all of his religious qualifications All of the things that he was trusting in to prepare him for that day of judgment. And then he met Christ. And he saw that it was all worthless. All his self-generated love and self-righteousness only put him in greater opposition to God's righteousness and God's love. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You and I can't have both when we stand before him on that day. Self-righteousness and Christ's righteousness do not blend. Only Christ's righteousness will allow us to stand before him and hear him say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. And this is great cause for humility in us. Are you tempted to take credit for or be proud of any love or discernment or purity or fruits of righteousness in yourself? If you're trusting in Christ, all those fruits of righteousness have come through Him and all credit goes to Him. And when someone recognizes growth in you, which I hope we do for one another, when we see growth in each other, we spur one another on. We say, I see you growing in the Lord. Thank them and praise God. Holy lives born out of godly love that He puts in us prepares us for the day of Christ. But that's not the ultimate end of our love and holiness. It's not about us. It's about God. And that brings us to point three. Glory for God. Glory for God. What is the end result of this life of love and discernment and holiness lived for God? Certainly we hope that our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers are drawn to this strange community that we have filled with love and goodness If they experience any of God's goodness through us, we must point them to the God who's making it all happen. We must speak about Him and about His Son and about the Spirit that guides and comforts and convicts and teaches. We need to be ready then with simple explanations of the gospel to share with people in any and every situation so that more will come to this faith in this God of ours. So often we hear of so-called gospels that promise rescue and relief and even material prosperity for those who trust in Jesus. And so the good news turns God in that situation into merely a financial planner or a marriage fixer or a pain reliever. And those are all things that God can do. But Paul reminds us that God rescues sinners like you and I, not for our own purposes, but for His glory and praise. That's the end result. Now glory, glory is the physical or visible manifestation of God's greatness and majesty and holiness. It's the character of the invisible God on display. His glory is increasingly seen in the world when we grow to be more like Him. To the degree that we grow in Christian maturity, He is increasingly visible to the watching world, therefore. And that happens now when we grow in Him, but it will happen to the fullest extent when the day of Christ comes. When we stand before Him, finally made perfect, declared and made pure, declared and made blameless, declared and made righteous because of Christ. The work will be completed. The book of Revelation in the New Testament is where the word glory is most used. It's the New Testament book where it's used the most, I should say. 
Revelation 21, 22 through 27 describes what it will be like when he judges all people and creates a new heaven and a new earth and we live with God in a city. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light we will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Note, that's a reflected glory. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. On that day, his glory will be unveiled and unhidden from all people. But for now, he gets glory through his church. Through men and women like you and I, maturing in Christ-likeness day in and day out by acting in discerning love and showing the fruits of righteousness in holy lives. And to the degree that we do that, we make his glory known. And that's why Paul would write to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. The more we grow into mature followers of Christ, we will shine brighter and brighter in this dark world that we live in. God's glory is what shines through us. Now remembering that we live to glorify Him guards us from many pitfalls and sins, but I want to mention at least two to you as I close. Number one, pride. When we remember that any Christian growth in us, any maturity that shows up in our lives is for His glory and because of Him at work in us, we know that we can't take credit for it. Even when we exert effort, as all Christians must do to grow, we say it's God who deserves the praise. We wouldn't even be trying hard if God were not at work in us. If we take pride in any love or holiness in our lives together, then it's like taking two steps forward and one step back. Pride itself stunts all Christian growth and ultimately robs God of glory. Don't be a glory thief. Have you seen any, any growth in yourself over the last year or two? Can you see any of his evidence of his working to transform you? Give him the praise. Thank him over and over again. And if you can't see Christian growth as you look back, you might be prone to the second pitfall, which is discouragement. You spoke in anger again. You caught your heart wandering again, envious and jealous of your co-worker's situation in life. You find yourself walking through the mall again, wondering how your life would be better if you had this thing or that thing. Maybe there's a sin that keeps coming back around and it's something that you've battled with much of your life. You wish it were over and you're discouraged. I don't want to excuse a refusal to repent. You need to repent But remembering that any Christian growth is for His glory releases us from the pressure to achieve or merit His favor of us. Fighting sin even 
is for his glory. Or perhaps it's your life situation that just seems so hard. There's one hardship after another and the challenges that you're facing keep piling up. Discouragement sets in. Don't be discouraged. Lift your eyes and fix them on Christ. That's how Paul, sitting in a prison cell, chained to Roman guards, could be joyful and give praise to God. What Paul did in that prison cell glorified God, in fact. No matter what you face, you and I can bring glory to God by looking to Him, abounding in discerning love for one another, growing in holiness together, and joyfully awaiting His return together. This is the life of a growing Christian. Let's pray for that in each other's lives right now. Father, please work in us to love one another deeply, to know the best to do for each other and to say to each other, Enable us to grow in holiness as a church, Lord, seeing the fruits of your righteous life showing up in us. Give us strength and clarity, Lord, strength and clarity of spiritual vision to run to the finish line, the day of Christ. And we proclaim that it is all for your glory, not ours. Amen.